This is Salt and Spine. I don't want to take people's authority away. You know, I think that that's been a tool of a lot of food media to tell people that they're not good enough or that they can't come up with it on their own. Um, And if they would just be a little bit more like X, their dinner would be better. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Welcome back. Happy 2022. Thank you for your patience as we prepared for another amazing season of conversations with some of your and my favorite cookbook authors. And you just heard a clip from one of those authors. It's today's guest, Abra Behrens. Now, Abra grew up in Michigan, actually on a pickle farm, and took an interest in food. By the time she was in college, she was working at Zingerman's Deli, learning from the chef, and then eventually moving to Ireland for culinary school. She came back to the States and worked for a while as a chef before running her own farm called Bare Knuckle. Today, she's the chef at Graner Farm in Three Oaks, Michigan, and the author of now a couple cookbooks. Her first cookbook, titled Roughage, A Practical Guide to Vegetables, was nominated for a James Beard Award and called a best cookbook by the New York Times and Bon Appetit. And now her highly anticipated follow-up to Roughage is here, and it's called Grist. And just like its predecessor, it is a practical guide, this time to grains and legumes. Each book breaks down 29 items, so in roughage, that's 29 vegetables, and here in Grist, we're working with 29 types of grains and legumes, with easy cooking techniques and over 300 recipe variations. As Abra says, like roughage before it, I wrote this book to continue to celebrate and demystify these pantry staples. We've got a great conversation today. We're talking about Abra's life, her career, and of course, uh, her cookbook process. Plus, of course, we're putting her to the test in our signature culinary game. One more piece of exciting news before we jump in today. The Salt and Spine Cookbook Club is also back, and our featured author this quarter for spring 2022 is none other than today's guest, Abra Behrens. We are so excited to cook along from Abra's books, both Grist and Roughage, and to come together to cook with Abra at our virtual dinner party in March. Stay tuned, more details are coming your way. And thanks, of course, to our cookbook club partner, The Civic Kitchen, and our club sponsor, Hardcover Cook. So now let's head to the Salt and Spine virtual studio, where I sat down with chef and author Abra Behrens to talk cookbooks. Hi, Abra. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Oh, my goodness, Brian. Thanks for your interest and for your time. I appreciate it. Yes, I'm so excited to talk with you today virtually. It's nice um, to connect this way. And I I will say, I just noted for you that I'm traveling. I actually brought both of your cookbooks in my suitcase, which if folks who are familiar with your work know, this was like at least a fourth of my suitcase right here (laughs) because they're both impressive volumes. And I'm so happy to talk with you about both of them and your latest book, Grist, which is a guy, a practical guide to cooking grains, beans, seeds, and legumes. But as you know, we always like to start by hearing a little bit more about you and your life before we dive into the book. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about your childhood. I know you grew up in in Michigan, right outside of Holland, Michigan. Yeah. Can you talk about that and the role that food played in your life growing up? 
So yes, I grew up about 20 miles south of Holland, Michigan. So for those of you who don't are intimately connected to Michigan's geography, <laughs> that's on the west side of the state in the lower peninsula. So we, you know, I grew up on a, an industrial pickle farm, which I mean, <laughs> usually makes people laugh a little bit. Uh, but yeah. my, my dad's family was a farming family. My grandmother was a school teacher and my grandfather was the farmer. And he participated in farming, but was also the first in his family to go to college and then go on to medical school. And that's where he met my mom. So both my parents uh, were anesthesiologists, but we were still very tied to the farm. And so that was kind of the culture that I grew up in. And it wasn't until going to college, I went to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and started working at Zingerman's Deli there. I mean, I had always worked in restaurants, like, you know, every farm kid, as soon as you turn 16 is like, I don't want to hold pickles anymore. So let me just like sure. drive into town and get a job. And so, yeah, so Zingerman's felt like a natural place to start, but it wasn't until there that I realized that there were there's a difference between types of farms, which sounds sort of silly to say now, but you know, my family was growing about 400 acres of cucumbers to sell to Heinz and things like that. And so all of a sudden I was interacting with all of these biodiverse vegetable farms and kind of just seeing a different way of farming in my area. And I think this is true for lots of places. There were much more like you know, people were farming, but then they had gardens for their household. And so I always right. grew up in a big garden and so felt connected to seasonality, but not in the way that it made sense to me later on. You were involved in cooking too, as a kid though, right? Just not professionally. It was your, your family were big cooks. I know your grandma, your mother were both big cooks. I think I read even that I'm not sure when to place this, if you were a child or like when, but you had a cheesecake recipe at one point published <laughs> in a cooking with kids column. Now, was that when you were a kid or were you writing for kids? Uh, no, it was when I was like a, a teenager, I think. I must have been like okay. 12 or something. Yeah, you've done your research. So yeah, my family were just big eaters and my parents worked long days and late days. And so we often kind of reconnected over the dinner table and there was never like, kids meal earlier at night and then adult meal later on we all kind of waited until my dad got home from farming which is often at like you know 9 nine thirty at night and ate together and then my yeah and so it was really a place where I kind of quickly learned some autonomy sort of by force because there my dad's a hunter as well and so for a while we had like a two-year uh, mom imposed moratorium on buying meat because we had freezers full of game meat. So it was like, right. you know, when you're eight or nine and you're like, okay, I don't want to actually eat venison anymore. And I don't care that this woodcock has been like rotisserie cooked at home on our counter. And it's like amazingly delicious. I just want a chicken nugget. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. I learned how to scramble eggs. And, you know, because my mom was like, if you don't like what I make, then you can go make yourself something. And so, yeah, scrambled eggs quickly became like the thing I could make. And so with that was a little bit of keys to freedom. <laughs> so that's how it started, yeah. I think. And then, yeah, I, I can't remember how that cheesecake column came about. I think it was like a friend of the family was doing like a series with the local paper. But I mean, that's the beauty of local papers, isn't it? It's like, sure. <laughs> stuff like that. 
Yes, exactly. So you're you're cooking, you know, throughout your life, kind of, and then you go and work at Zingerman's, like you mentioned, and and then after there, you go to culinary school. I'm wondering if you can talk us through that period. Was it like a overnight sort of thing of like, oh, I'd like to be a cook, and it clicked, or was it just like gradual and it just sort of kept building, and then all of a sudden you're in culinary school? Yeah, that it, more the latter. So okay. I started working at Zingerman's on a bit of a lark and really loved it. You know, I loved the ethos there. I loved the food there. It was such a place of education. And I happened to know the chef there through family friends. And so I <laughs> I think I didn't have the sort of respect for the chef that you're supposed to have because I like kind of knew him a little bit or I like knew that my sister knew him. And so, okay. yeah, while, <laughs> while I was working there, I was like, Hey Roger, his name is Roger Bowser. I was like, Hey Roger, I want to learn how to make uh, chicken paprikash. Can I come over to your house and learn how to make it? And he was like, no, <laughs> you can't. Um, but <laughs> so eventually I just kept asking enough times uh, about different things that finally he was like, if you want to learn how to do this stuff, let's figure out a time at work. And I think that's the real beauty of Zingerman's is that, um, you know, their management style really is, is based on this idea of servant leadership and kind of paying attention to what staff members are interested in and then feeding that. And, um, and that's what Roger did for me. So he kind of took me under well, not under his wing, but under Andrew Wilhelm's wing, who, uh, you know, had been at the deli for a long time. And so suddenly I was just like partnered up with Andrew a few days a week and cooking. And Andrew taught me so much, you know, how to everything from how to make fresh mozzarella to we would do all these big projects. So we would make like thousands of pot pies every winter for January. Um, and, you know, all these uh-huh. different baked knishes and matzo balls and just everything. And then from there, then I was actually needed in the kitchen. And so I moved into other positions there. And it was from that kind of like working through all of the different positions in that kitchen, where I was like, you know, I've always wanted to write about food. um, And to do that really well, I think I should go to cooking school. But I wasn't convinced that I wanted to go to like the CIA and spend two and a half years doing it. And I also wasn't convinced it was the right thing to do. So I was talking with Roger about it and he said, you know, maybe, oh, and I had just gotten into the Peace Corps as well. And so I was kind of deciding between these two things. And he said, you know, you don't need a full on two and a half year education, but you do need some foundational skills that we just can't teach you here because of the nature of the business. And so he said, you know, consider checking out Bally Malou. He had done his externship there when he was in cooking school. So he knew it, had a fondness for it, knew the ethos and thought it would be a good fit. And it really was. So yeah, I moved to Ireland and went to school for 12 weeks. And then I stayed in the UK and was able to convince people to let me work for them, even though I didn't have like any sort of documentation and just yeah. like stayed on friends' couches and worked for free and learned and, and then moved back uh, home to the States. And my husband's from Chicago. So I moved from Ann Arbor to Chicago and that's where I started cooking professionally. And then sort of you worked in restaurants in Chicago, right? And then now you're back in Michigan. What sort of led you back to Michigan and the roles, the roles that you've had that are more sort of, 
I don't know if we would call them high, not hybrid roles, but really focused on like cooking from the farm and cooking from a specific place. Yeah. I mean, again, kind of a, maybe my life is full of larks. Uh, I, I moved to Chicago because I wanted to be with my now husband and was lucky enough to find a community of cooks through Green City Market, um, which is the large farmer's mm-hmm. market in Chicago. And um, so I started baking for Sandra Hull, who owns Floral Bakery, because I wanted to become a better baker. And then also, I so I was line cooking at night because um, I wanted to be a better line cook. And then I was baking during the morning, so I wanted to be a better baker. Um, and so I did that for a while. And then the market closed. And so I ended up going to V restaurant. And I, I didn't even want to work there. I just, I was making yogurt at home and it wasn't setting up. And so the man I was working for was like, well, if anybody's making yogurt, it would be Paul out at V. And so I just went to stage. I didn't even really know what a stage was. I just wanted to ask about yogurt. And then somehow I ended up like working there for two years. (laughs) Um, And in that time, I, you know, I, so I think it's just about curiosity. It's like being interested in stuff and then following it. And then I also, while I was at Valley Malou, which is a cooking school and a guest house and a restaurant that's based on really fed from a hundred acre working organic farm, I wanted to, I was like, oh, maybe this is what I want to do. I want to like tell the story of how food is grown, like with a meal. Um, and what would that mean? And what would that look like? And then my, um, then Eric, my husband went to Ann Arbor and had a beer with my friend Jess, who had just started farming for Zingerman's and was like, I think this is what I want to do. I want to do this. So um, we started Bare Knuckle Farm together, again, mostly just to kind of learn um, about growing food. And, and then we quickly put in a dinner program there. Um, but Eric and I weren't ready to leave Chicago. So I was commuting every six months, which is complicated, uh, not sustainable. So then I moved back to Chicago, helped open a cafe that was in a produce market and kind of quickly found that even the best like produce distribution business is not the same as cooking from a farm. And so I wanted to move back to Michigan most because I love living rurally and, you know, some things happened in 2016 and I wanted to be back in a state that I loved and help maybe have some conversations here. And then I found Grainer Farm, which was looking to kind of put in experiential dining. And I was like, hey, that's what I do. Apparently, I didn't know that I did that, but that is what I do. And so that's how I started back at Grainer. And that's where we are. Can you talk about how you describe your approach to cooking today? Like if someone comes to Granner Farms and says like, what is your role or how do you approach food and what role does agriculture play in that? And I know you're, you're particularly involved in, in thinking about agriculture policy too. Like how do you sort of tell people who you are and what you do in like an elevator pitch way these days? Um, well, I don't do it that well, I guess is part of the problem, but I, I <laughs> the elevator pitch is that I make food that is of a place and in a moment. And so the the meals at Grainer, we are not a restaurant. We never will be. Uh, and what we do is when you come to eat at our farm, you will have a meal that is a snapshot of a particular piece of land at a particular moment in time. 
And what that means is that no meal has ever repeated. We repeated a couple of dishes here and there, but yeah, no, no selection of meals has ever repeated. And that's because the way that I cook is based on ingredients first, which sounds like really stupid. Like it sounds like that's what everybody in a marketing campaign would say, but it's really true. It's like we write the menus at Grainer after seeing what is in the field. So it often starts with a field walk or what's in the farm stand and what we're excited about. And sometimes that excitement is, you know, it it kind of bridges the whole spectrum. It can be everything from the excitement of being the very first flush of shishito peppers that's on the plant. That's like, you know, it's probably 40 peppers off of 15 plants. And so not enough to sell in the farm stand without making people grouchy because there weren't enough. So we get those and it's the very first thing and it's so exciting. But then also you can be excited about peppers when you're just like overloaded with peppers. And so it's like, there's this bounty of peppers that we can't sell at market because, you know, we have 300 pounds of peppers. And so then I'll take all of them and stew them down into something really rich and make it like a really big focal point of the menu. Or you can be excited about those peppers because it's going to frost next week and you know that they're the last peppers that you're going to have all season. And so that's the story that we're trying to tell is like, where, where are these ingredients at this moment in time and how does that function for us? And then I haven't found a better way to explain it, but we also function as sort of the place where we can take imperfect things and make them perfect. So if say we have, we harvest 60 bunches of kale for market and we sell 50 of them. There's 10 that are now imperfect because they've been on display in the farm stand. We would never sell produce that's a week old. Um, and so kind of through no, no fault of their own, the kale has become imperfect. Well, I know that I can put that into a storage bin and I'm going to saute it. And I'm just, if it's a little wilty, I'm just going to make it wiltier and give it a home. Um, and so that's the other kind of component of what we do. It's hard to explain that yeah. to people, but it's the truth. Yeah, that no, that's really interesting. And I think your ingredient first sort of approach is also a nice transition into talking about the books because you structure the books, both of your cookbooks, Roughage and Grist, in in sort of a similar way, right? Chapters are built around core ingredients. There's recipes that have variations. Like did you sort of know when you said or when you set out to write roughage your first cookbook like this is how it's going to be how much did that sort of evolve as you were working on the book or was that like a clear vision from day one um kind of mixed i guess it was probably a clearer vision than i thought at the time so another lark that i followed was reaching out to the traverse city record eagle which is again you know beauty of local papers to see if I could write a column for them. And so I started writing a column for them, I think in the spring of or fall of 2013. And then it was such a like wonderful thing because all of a sudden I, I really benefit from deadlines. And so I had like consistent writing that was due on a deadline and the, what I had pitched to them was basically a column around a particular ingredient that was either prepared the same way with different flavors or prepared differently, but with similar flavors. So if you were to take asparagus and roast it, how is that the same or different of asparagus that's poached? And to really, mm-hmm. you know, encourage people to kind of dive deep on these ingredients. 
So it's probably, that probably means that the vision was clear from the get-go. I don't know that I really saw it as a vision at the time. And so from the column, then, you know, my friend Tim Mazurik sent uh, my columns to his friend Kari, who is a literary agent. And I think eventually that became her reaching out and saying, have you ever thought about doing a book? And, you know, I had thought about doing a book. I, <laughs> I thought that it would be taking all those columns and just like putting them between a couple covers and be done, which is not right. what it was. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so that was the start of the book. And so when we, and Kari really helped me write the proposal or like, you know, encouraged me to continue working on the proposal is more accurate. So, uh, yeah, then it became, okay, here's the vegetable you can go to market, buy what is exciting to you and have lots of different options for what to do with it. And it's just kind of how my brain works, I guess, you know, which is, and I really, you know, there have been a few cookbooks. I think mine, Tom Colicchio's Mind of a Chef, uh, most notably that tries to express how to, how chefs think or how restaurant folks think and how it's a little bit different maybe than how home cooks think. And I, I wanted to do that, but with a little bit more support, I really loved the book, the flavor Bible. I still use it. Um, and I started giving it to people and found that people either like if they were confident cooks, they really loved it. And it felt like a treasure trove. If they weren't confident cooks, they really hated it. And so I wanted to provide a tool that was like that, but had a little bit more recipe support. Sure. Yeah, I love that. And I think your structure is so unique. And so um, contrary to how many cooks cook, because a lot of folks buy a cookbook, and they want to open it and say, here's a recipe, I'm going to go to the grocery store and buy these ingredients, the photo's nice, it looks great, it sounds like a good dinner. And you're really, you know, encouraging people to take and roughage a, a, a produce item and grist a, a grain or a bean and really understand it more and to understand yeah. the ingredients. And I'm curious to to play off of that about the titles of the books, because I've heard you talk about roughage before and a little bit what that means. And then grist is sort of similar, right? They're not these, I would imagine if you put together a focus group with cookbook publishers (laughs) and said, these are two words we'd love to have in every cookbook title, they might scoff. And they're not like these, you know, foodie, sexy words. (laughs) Yeah. But they're so great. And I'm curious if you could talk about how you landed on those titles and what they sort of mean to you. It's funny, you know, I was mentioning Paul Verant, who I cooked for for a long time, and all of us who came out of his kitchen um, have this kind of ongoing joke that we make really tasty food that sounds terrible. There's something about like the way that he names menu items that apparently is like very off-putting. Um, and so I think I came at it from a deficit, but no, really the, yeah, it's just meant to be lighthearted and tongue in cheek a little bit, you know, and roughage came from this idea of like, you got to eat your roughage and that it's like drudgery that you have to like kind of slog through. And it's just meant to like kind of poke fun at that a little bit. Um, and then for Grist, <laughs> yeah, no focus groups were consulted. And in fact, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to call the book fodder. I was trying to figure out like what, what's the equivalent. And so I thought, oh, right. fodder is that, or, or silage was the other word, which is like what cattle eat, you know? And right, um, yeah. 
Yeah, Chronicles just said no. They were like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) And so then, you know, we were kind of at home, like trying to figure it out. And my my husband said, well, what about Grist? I think we literally put it into a thesaurus. And and yeah, and I really liked it. And I liked the idea of, you know, a grist mill and the act of turning a grain into flour. And it sounded like something to chew on is another way that grist gets used. And um So it's funny because so that then became the working title. And I found out later that the higher ups at Chronicle also didn't like that title. (laughs) Um, But somehow my editor, Sarah Billingsley, who's just a, you know, magician, got it through. And so that's what it is for now. Uh, Or I mean, that's what it is. It's not changing now. And I really love it. And I think it's, you know, it's, it is meant to give people something to think about and something to chew on. And like what you were saying, um, I don't think I realized how unconventional the style of these books is. Um, And I was struggling a little bit, I guess it's like a little bit myopic of me because, you know, it's just, again, the way that I think. And so I assume other people would, would, feel the same way. But I was reading, I had kind of a dark day and I was reading Amazon reviews, which, you know, is neither here nor there. And somebody said, you know, I, I read this book from cover to cover. I, I feel like I learned so much and I'll probably never cook any of these recipes. And at first I was like, Oh, and then I was like, no, that's actually perfect. That's what I hope for out of this, you know, is that, I don't want to take people's authority away. You know, I think that that's been a tool of a lot of food media um, to tell people that they're not good enough or that they can't come up with it on their own. Um, And if they would just be a little bit more like X, their dinner would be better. And so really what it is, is about like, I think in order to break that cycle, you have to invest some time, you know, and invest some interest. And so that can only come with like doing it and learning about it. And so that's what I'm hoping to provide and then let people take it where they want. Like, I don't like blue cheese. And so I don't want to tell someone you have to use blue cheese or you have to use feta if they don't like it, you know? Right. I don't know. It's a little bit, we can get real dogmatic real quickly, but. No, that's really interesting because I think it, it is, um, it's a dense book. There's a lot of information that people can absorb, but there's also a lot of recipes and it's also structured in a way that is very versatile. So people can sort of adapt recipes within the book to their likes and dislikes. And one of the other things in both of your books that I really love is the condiment section or the section that, that has, you know, vinaigrettes and dressings and um, sauces and things, dozens of them. And it, I mean, I feel like if I had uh, that, all of those things made and in my fridge, like I would never have a bad meal in my life. And it's really customizable. Mm-hmm. Same. And I think that's another part of kind of taking um, the benefits of restaurant cooking and applying them to home cooking, which is that just the way that you cook is different, you know, and I feel this way about batch cooking as well, that like, no restaurant is cooking risotto from start to finish for one person, like one portion at a time. It's just like, it's, it, it it wouldn't work. And so it's the same thing. It's like, 
what is this dish structurally? And then, you know, what do you need? And so you kind of build those pieces out separately and then have them in the fridge. And I think I just, I mean, yeah, I love condiments. I was saying to a friend recently, you know, people always talk about chefs and, or I guess losers in general that you'd open up their fridge and it would just be full of condiments. And I'm kind of like, what's wrong with that? You know, <laughs> I don't know what the problem is. Um, and I guess if it's just like eight different types of ketchup, maybe that's different, but like, I don't know. All this other stuff is so tasty. So, Yeah, exactly. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Abra Barons. Don't go anywhere. I'm Clea Worster, Salt and Spine producer. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine, where you'll find the chance to win copies of featured cookbooks as well as recipes from the books. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin to Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Carla Hall, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. If you're a new listener, check out our catalog of more than 100 interviews with cookbook authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We can only do it thanks to listeners like you. The best way to support our work here at Salt and Spine is by subscribing to our Patreon page. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Subscribers receive early access to events, opportunities to win signed cookbooks, and bonus content. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at www.patreon.com saltandspine. And now here's the second part of my conversation with Abra Behrens, author of Grist. Well, you can't write a book about that's at least partially about beans <laughs> without talking about the role that they had in the past, well, coming on like two years now, year and a half of all of our collective lives, right? They became this sort of trendy thing during the pandemic and everybody was making beans. You acknowledge this a little bit in the book and in one of the blurbs you talk about... Um, scrolling through Instagram and seeing beans and then like an ad for a shirt with beans and like (laughs) it just takes off. And so I'm curious to know like what you were thinking as you were seeing that happen. And if you could share a little bit of your thoughts on what that felt like to be a person who had spent all this time writing a book in that way and to see this like sudden interest. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think most people assume that this book was born from the pandemic and we had I had committed to writing it before the pandemic, but I really sat down to write the bulk of it, you know, in March of 2020. And so it's, it's very much informed by the pandemic. And so, and that's true in a couple of ways. One, yes, suddenly like food, Instagram and TikTok just exploded because everybody was home and everybody like suddenly had time to bake bread and, you know, do all this stuff. Um, And for the most part, I think that that's really positive because I think, so much of kind of what I see as being the weakness in food culture in this country is because we're all so strapped for time. And so all of a sudden we didn't need a 30 minute meal. Um, You know, we could have a two and a half hour meal. And I think that's really positive. I think that the negative side is that we are also often very thirsty for the next thing. And so I was afraid that that would happen to beans that like the, cooking beans was suddenly like super cool and this thing. And I felt like if it didn't become a part of people's habits, 
then all of a sudden, like in a year and a half, would we be like, oh, beans are so <laughs> passe. There's that Janelle Monet song um, right. where she says, oh, cool it with the kale. And it's like, are we going to have that for beans? And these are just little, poor little beans, you know, uh, they didn't. Yeah, suck right. well. And so I was worried. Right. That. <laughs> and I wanted to acknowledge that, that like, you know, that is one of the downsides of being able to share all of this stuff is, you know, that we can burn through trends. And especially when you look at that through an agricultural lens, like, and that was part of the point of these farmer profiles is to say, like, look at these actual experiences and what they mean. So, you know, a bean grower is going to plant seeds. They're going to order seeds in, you know, November, December, usually before the first of the year, they're going to get planted as soon as the ground is thawed and it's not going to frost again and it's dry enough. So that's usually between April and June, depending on where you are and what your soil is like. And then they're going to grow until, you know, throughout the season and then they're going to get harvested and then they have to be cleaned and then they have to go to market and then they're going to end up getting packaged and distributed. And so these, these cycles are so long in agriculture that if you have, you can't have a like mermaid toast phenomenon for an agricultural product and have farmers react positively. And so that's kind of, it was like the, the mashup of those two worlds I found really interesting. And then the pandemic, you know, all of a sudden there weren't beans and there weren't flour. And so like all of these things, you know, I, I make fun of mermaid toast, but like, you know, if that was the trend and that's what everybody's clamoring after, but then all of a sudden everybody wanted sacks of flour and sacks of beans to make them feel safe, you know, and all of a sudden they weren't there. And what does that mean? It, it means a lot, I think. Yeah. I'm curious as, as um, you were working on this book and writing it um, over the past couple of years, are there grains or pulses that you're like a newer convert to, or that you're like really adoring lately that you weren't using as much before? Like what's sort of the newfound love maybe that came up from working on this book? Yeah. I mean, I think so many, to be honest. And I think that's the benefit of having things in your kitchen and wanting to use them up is that you do use them up. And so, yeah, so as far as ingredients that are now kind of like newfound darlings, I really love Fonio now, and I had never heard of it Mm. before this book. And, you know, I had heard about it in kind of like a weird food networking event where some... (laughs) Some guy was like, have you heard about the next superfood Fonio? And I was like, no, you're weird. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then I yeah. saw Chef Pierre Thames' uh, book and was like, wait, I know that name. And then I uh, saw he had helped found Yolele Foods, and so which is a company that's working importing Fonio from female-owned farms in Senegal and just really doing incredible work. And so... I was like, well, I'll order some of that and try to learn about it. And I love cooking it. It cooks up super fast. It's super fluffy, all those things. It's gluten-free when that's important for folks. So yeah, I think Fonio was a really good one. Also, you know, things like bulgur and buckwheat are the other two. Bulgur I knew about and I it never really worked its way into my rotation. I think I always preferred couscous. And then I found like, oh, this is a whole grain, you know, it's not like couscous is just like a baby pastas. Um, and so this is a whole grain that hasn't been processed in any way, except that it's been parboiled. I'll buy some of that and then use it a lot. And then also buckwheat, which 
I always thought, I guess maybe it's because it's like, you know, part and parcel with Russia and Ukraine. I just thought it would take like a really long time to cook. I don't know why I just assume everything there is hard. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it took so fast. It takes like 12 minutes. So I really yeah. overcooked the first batch <laughs> uh, and then really fell in love with it from there. That's awesome. Well, you mentioned a few cookbook authors or books that you you really love. You mentioned Tom Clicchio's and then the Flavor Bible as well, which is one we hear often when we talk to people about cookbooks. I'm curious more generally, like if there are things that you really think make a great cookbook, you've written to yourself now, like what do you look for in a cookbook, like the Flavor Bible, that's going to be one that you just really rely on? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think there's a couple of ways to answer that. Um, and I've tried to knit some of those things together with these works. Yeah, I think the Flavor Bible is one of the most innovative tools that I've ever seen. And, it, you know, so yeah, certainly like anything that's going to help kind of give you tools to be creative in your own right feels really special. Mm-hmm. And, but then the flip side to that is a, is like Nigel Slater, you know, who I think really made me realize like cookbooks can be weird and like his writing is, is intense and it can be dark and it can be like very heady and very funny too, like just very, very funny. And so recognizing that there's space for that and that kind of gave me the permission to get a little weirder with it. Like some of the essays in these books are, are strange and, you know, just like a funny thing. And then I think, you know, people like Elizabeth David are in that same vein, you know, where it's really, it's lifestyle work. That's not quote unquote lifestyle content, I guess, you know, it's about thinking about things in a certain way. And then, you know, there's yeah. obviously Samin Nosra, I think is, we're all so lucky that we get to, you know, be around the same time that she is. And I think she bridges that pretty well. You know, I think she thinks about things in an innovative way as well. I mean, there's a million books like that, that just feel, I don't know, I guess what I like about cookbooks is maybe it's similar to the idea of making food that's of a particular place at a particular moment in time. I think that if, if a book feels like every other one, I think you can have those good recipes that come out of it that are really standbys, but I don't know what it adds to the canon. I think when I look for a book, I look for a book that is going to be very much of a moment and I might grow out of that moment, but I want it to be of that, I guess. Yeah. I think that's really great. I love that. Well, I could talk all day about cookbooks with you, but we always end with little games. So I thought we would transition to our game and I'm going to call the game today, the Abra effect, because (laughs) I think it works well. So the title is the Abra effect. We have five, sorry, four decks of cards here Mm -hmm. with ingredients on them. So we have a flavor deck, which is herbs, spices, et cetera, vegetable deck, which is vegetables. We have a protein deck, which is a mixture of meat proteins and other proteins, uh, beans and legumes and things. And then we have the secret ingredient deck, which are kind of wild cards. So building off of the format that your cookbooks take, I thought maybe you could pick from one of these decks. We can do a round or two. We'll see how it goes and give us, you know, some variations. You, you do these weeks without boredom, right? In, oh. in the cookbooks, yeah. right? So if we had, you know, ground beef is the top protein, what would 
a couple ideas for ground beef look like? How does that sound? <laughs> a week of ground beef? Yeah, this is great. It doesn't have to be you know, a whole I, week. Just a couple ideas. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I love this theme and I love the podcast so much. And so this is always my favorite part. And so it's funny. I've been like all week, I've been like, what am I going to say? And now the game is different. <laughs> yes, I know. We try to adapt it a little bit for all of our guests. So I hope this sounds fun. So what, what would you like to start with? Flavor, vegetable, protein, or secret ingredient? I mean, I think we have to start with the secret ingredient first, right? Like, Okay, we'll start with a secret ingredient. All right, I'm going to draw from the middle. Uh, it's kumquats. <laughs> oh, nice one. Okay, so kumquats, I would that? think about... I guess, so whenever I think about fruit, I think about... Because I grew up in the fruit belt, and so we use a lot of fruit in all types of cooking. And so I always think like, can we take it sweet and take it savory? So if I were going to take a kumquat on a savory journey, they're so, they can be very bitter and tannic. So I would say something like with lamb, like if you were to do like a, like either a lamb chop or a slow cooked lamb with like a salad Mm. of really thinly shaved kumquats, like, you know, slice them super thin, kind of like you would Meyer lemon. And then, yeah something like a tomb alongside. So like maybe a salad of like bulgur or couscous and arugula and olive oil and then tomb on the side, probably some rosemary in there somewhere. That sounds really good to me. And if I do kind of a play on that, um, if you didn't want to have meat, but you wanted kind of the richness and the savoriness, I've been really loving do you know what bread cheese is? Is that a thing on the West Coast? No, no. Kind of like halloumi. Um, okay. It's a Swedish thing. And so it's a really like dry squeaky cheese that you pan fry. Um, and yeah, I mean, halloumi is probably the closest thing. So I would do something like a bread cheese or halloumi grilled or pan fried. So it gets really dark and crusty. And then again, kind of like raw kumquat with some salt and some greens, something like that. And if you were going to take it sweet, I would probably want to candy them uh, mm-hmm. with something custardy. So like a cream puff or a like uh, pastry cream in puff dough and then these candied kumquats on top maybe a little bit of rose water in the creme pat. Yeah, that's probably what I would do. Or I would also, I've been really into floats lately. Uh, like oh, okay. Floats, yeah. Tiny floats. And so I would probably want to make like a kumquat ice cream and then put that in a float with soda water and like lemon verbena or something like that. Wow, that sounds delicious. I mean, I feel like we're we're healthily on our way to a week of kumquats. Yeah. <laughs> a non-boring week of kumquats. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. Should we do one more? Please. Close it out. Do all of uh, them. Which which one, which category do you like? Let's do a protein. I probably should have done protein and vegetable considering the two books, but you know, I just got so lulled in the secret ingredient. And we've got salmon. Oh, nice. Well, 
it's funny. I was still on my like sweet and savory thing. And I was like, I don't know how you make salmon. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We don't have to No, just, just yeah. a few ideas for a non-boring salmon week, which I feel like actually <laughs> salmon is one of those things that people can get bored with quite easily because they don't know how to prepare it more than just like roasted. Yeah. Well, I think the versatility of salmon is going to be in its textures, like textural differences. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, and that's where the preparation technique comes in. So that immediately says to me, you know, raw, like a salmon tartare or like a lox sort of situation. I mean, I guess lox is kind of cured, but like, I love salmon tartare, especially if it's like a schooner bay salmon, like a super fatty salmon. So that would be one way to do it. And then have that with like pickles and olive oil and a bunch of herbs over top of little like pumpernickel toasts would be so good. And then I would say from there, I I love skin on crispy skin salmon. And it's actually the woman I cooked for in London, Sky Gingle, who's just an incredible chef and such a mentor and friend. She taught me to cook fish unilaterally so it would be skin down like screaming hot pan skin down and then um, you just keep it on the burner and let it come up in in texture so you have like crispy skin very firm flesh and then the top is sort of that like mid rare kind of like a little bit soft sort of texture right and I would probably I love that then basted with a bunch of compound butter so like maybe a garlic lemon compound butter and then just a big salad so you get kind of like crunch and crisp something like that sounds nice and then I would say the foil to that is going to be either poached or like a really gentle cook But I love poaching salmon. And it's funny, I have like three fish poachers, which is, you know, no one needs three fish poachers. I just (laughs) inherited them from a number of places. So we often do it when we do a big dinner party on January 2nd, traditionally, it's like our friend's end of holiday season. And so it's like you pull the fish poacher out and it takes over two burners of your stove. And so usually when I'm poaching fish, I'll put like a big bed of fennel and onion and lemon um, and then lay the fish on that and then water and I usually put some butter in that liquid too just because I mean like why not at this point bring it up to as soon as it starts to look steamy and then turn it off and let it just carry over in the liquid so I I really undercook a poach then how I was taught to do it and then you just let it like hang out in there so it ends up being kind of like it's not hot, but it's like warm. And then it's like so buttery and melty. And I love putting that with something that's like really bracing, like uh, a really bitter green salad with shaved Meyer lemons or something like a really acidic pickle. And then I would rely on other side dishes, like, you know, some, some roast carrots or like something kind of like a mash of some sort maybe to go with it. But yeah. That sounds delicious. I I don't eat a lot of kumquats, but I eat a lot of salmon. And I feel like I've got to step up my salmon game now. <laughs> like those oh. <laughs> those sound incredible. <laughs> Do you ever make uh, fish and papio? I feel like it's like an old school technique we don't use anymore but i love it it's so fun i do love it and the act of cutting the paper open and the steam rolls out and it's just a beautiful presentation yeah and they're so easy like they're the best dinner party food because once you get the timing down 
you just build it all in advance and then you don't have to worry about it. You just pop it in the oven and then yeah, everybody gets their own like little parcel. I love it. Right. Yes. Well, thank you, Abra, for playing the Abra Effect game. That was so much fun. And part of the reason I love these games, too, is we get to see creative process. Like, it's so fascinating to just see how how your brain works when handed to ingredients. So that was so much fun. And it was such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Oh, such a pleasure for me, too. And truly, I mean... I work in a kitchen that does not have a radio signal. And so podcasts have become like the lifeblood of our kitchen and salt and spine is just like such a favorite. And so I really appreciate it and, and I'm honored to be on. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's episode and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find featured recipes from Abra Baron's Grist. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave Salt and Spine a rating on iTunes and join our community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine's studio home is the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 